The sun had set. Chick Harley, Ohio State's modest do-it-all American halfback, was gone. In Chick's three seasons of varsity eligibility, he captured two conference titles, the first two Big Ten championships in the history of Ohio State football. In his last season, for the very first time, the Buckeyes played and beat Fielding Yost's mighty Michigan Wolverines. When Harley was on the field, the Buckeyes were near unbeatable. A perfect 7-0 in 1916, an 8-0-1 record in 1917, and when Harley rejoined the team after returning from his service in World War I, OSU notched a 6-1 mark in 1919. There went Harley. As though cut from some sort of Greek mythos, the local kid from East High School stepped onto campus and, when paired with Coach Jack Wilson's open style of play that infused a passing attack, well, they took the Big Ten by storm. It was almost then by some sort of menacing twist of fate that Harley's very last game as a Buckeye was his very first defeat, falling to eventual national champion Illinois. When Harley's final pass fell incomplete, he was circled by his teammates, who proved no barrier to the tears that flowed. The hero walked from the field, defeated. But even in loss, Ohio State grew once more. Days after Harley's final game against Illinois, OSU set the process in motion to build Ohio Stadium. Harley and company had drawn so much success, had created so much excitement, that the cozy confines of Ohio Field would not hold. They needed a bigger stage. A much bigger stage. Now Ohio State had its eyes on a jewel of engineering, a Roman Colosseum of the Midwest, where tens of thousands would flock to cheer on the men of scarlet and gray. And so it was, as Ohio State coach John Wills entered his eighth season at the helm of OSU football, the program stood between shadows. There was the shadow of accomplishment of Chick Harley that represented a blaze of glory of OSU's near past, and the shadow of the future the planning for the new stadium that would define Ohio State's program. The 1920 Ohio State Buckeyes stood between those shadows, looking to bridge OSU's recent success into its bright future. Many had questions about the team under coach John Wills. How would the program respond to losing its first genuine star? Would the Big Ten championships the team captured in 1916 and 1917 be the start of a new high road for OSU? Or was that an aberration? The 1920 schedule did coach Wills no favors. The front end didn't look so challenging. Ohio Wesleyan, Oberlin, Purdue. Then things got real. Taking on Wisconsin and then a road trip against the Amos Alonzo Stag coach Chicago Maroons. Michigan, and then another trip to the only team Ohio State lost to a season ago, Illinois. It was a murderer's row. Far from Columbus and Pasadena, a new tradition was unfolding. The Pacific Coast Conference, the forerunner of the Pac-12, had an idea to put one of the best teams from their conference against one of the best teams from the eastern United States. Those teams would meet in the Rose Bowl. In the Rose Bowl the previous season, Harvard took down Oregon. That 1920 game established a pattern of one of the best teams of the East playing one of the best teams of the West. It was a tradition that would last until the start of the BCS era. For Ohio State and the Big Ten, if you were good enough, you wouldn't just win the conference. You might get your ticket punched to Pasadena, but the path to sunny California went through a brutal Big Ten.
Chick Harley was gone, but Coach Wills knew this squad was loaded. Stepping in for Harley would be Pete Stinchcomb, who moved back to his natural position at halfback after spending the prior season at QB. Taking the helm at quarterback was Hodge Workman. Stinchcomb and Workman were joined in the backfield by Charles Taylor and Frank Willman at fullback. The backfield played behind a powerful line. At captain was Eilis Hoffman, who was joined by Bob Spires and Dean Trott. Andrew Nemec was at center, flanked on either side by guards Bob Weich and John Taylor. Taylor was a force of nature, nicknamed Tarzan. At the ends, Noel Workman, Truck Myers, and Bill Sliker stood strong. For Wills, change came off the football field as well. In the summer, he married Minerva Connor from Walnut Hills in Cincinnati. The brainy, cerebral Wills spent the summer busy, teaching at Columbia University. As summer turned to fall, Wills returned to Columbus, and preparations started to get the team into shape. The team worked through a steady rain in the week leading into the home opener against Ohio Wesleyan. Wills, with the chart and crayon, outlined new plays, including work on new forward passes. Wills knew this team had to be tough, that this schedule, Wisconsin, Chicago, Michigan, Illinois, was arguably as tough as the team had ever faced. Wills' philosophy of intestinal fortitude endured, that the players owed it to themselves and their teammates to dig deep, and... In one of the last practices before the season, he spoke to the team about what he expected of their effort, about what he expected of their intensity. Wills said, An intense passion for obtaining possession of the ball must be developed by every man on this team. The Lantern urged students to come out to support the squad opening day and underscored the importance of the season. Ohio State is starting a new epic on its gridiron career. Veterans of former battles with the Big Ten 11s have departed and now new blood has been coupled with the nucleus that remains of former teams. These new men will be playing their first game for the Scarlet and Gray, and unless they are made to feel that the student body is behind them heart and soul, they will be unable to put the required punch and vigor into their playing. It is the hope of everyone, no doubt, that the stands be packed in a rooting section that best all former aggregations be on hand. This can only be accomplished by every man and woman in the university assuming that it is his or her own individual duty to be on hand and to give the varsity a hand as it makes ready for the initial fray. Meanwhile, as plans were in motion for the building of Ohio Stadium, interest was booming in the team with overflow crowds in Ohio Field. The student section expanded in the West Bleachers, allowing 3,500 to attend. For $8, a student would be admitted to the football, basketball, track, and OSU tennis matches. The deal even threw a free button to wear. Times were certainly different. The year marked Ohio State's 50th anniversary, and with an eye toward the future, the fall would soon see a million-dollar benefit drive raise funds for the new stadium. Already, the city was abuzz with talk of the new stadium to be named after the Buckeye State. It would be the nation's biggest with a seating capacity of 63,000, 2,000 more than the Yale Bowl. It would be fortified by 40,000 cubic yards of concrete and 4,000 tons of steel. At 107 feet tall, it would dwarf the other buildings on campus, proving even double the height of the library. 
to walk around the stadium alone would be one third of a mile. Its footprint would be 150,000 square feet, the same amount covered by the 10 newest buildings on campus. In fact, if you laid out the seats of the stadium end by end in a single line, it would stretch for 21 miles. Suffice it to say, there needed to be some funds to support this new Goliath. Seats near the midfield of Ohio Field were reserved for the highest bidder. The proceeds would go to fund the new stadium. So it was. Another successful year on the football field wouldn't just result in a glowing record. It would be just what OSU needed to keep excitement among donors and students alike to fund this new colossal stadium. This team was just a football team, but for the university, much more was on the line. Like a sprinter in form from the starting line, the Buckeyes raced past their opponents. Ohio Wesleyan, Oberlin, Purdue all fell. Ohio State outscored them 109 points to nothing. Now, things were about to get serious. Now, OSU welcomed another undefeated opponent, an opponent that many said were the best in the Big Ten. In came Wisconsin and Wisconsin's coach John Richards. Yes, that John Richards. This was John Richards' first return to Columbus since he unexpectedly quit at Ohio State as head coach after a single season in 1912. The move shocked the university. On the bright side, Richards was the man who recommended OSU hire John Wills. Wills had served as an assistant to Richards when the two were at Wisconsin. Now in Columbus, the two squared off again. At a jam-packed Ohio field, looking down on the action sat a man who needed no introduction. It was Walter Camp. Camp was already a legend of his own time. Without him, football as we know it would not really exist. As a star halfback at Yale, Camp served as a team captain and became a member of the Intercollegiate Football Association. There, Camp proposed many rule changes to govern the game of football, rules that would make it distinct from rugby. Proposal after proposal of Camp's were adopted. The 11-man side, the line of scrimmage, a more modern scoring system to differentiate between touchdowns, safeties, and field goals. He went on to coach Yale, winning 67 games and losing only twice. Now Camp held an almost mythical post, known throughout the college football land as the man who selected the All-American team. Camp knew all there was to know about college football. He knew about Chick Harley. He knew about Ohio State's first All-American in 1916 and again in 1919. He certainly knew about the bad blood between OSU and Wisconsin coach John Richards. Yet paradoxically, when coach Richards quit OSU after only a single season, he also knew that without his departure, that without Richards' recommendations of Wills to take the top job, OSU wouldn't be where it was today. There from the stands, Camp took in the action, and what he saw he would not soon forget. Wisconsin was ready to go, and the Badgers claimed a narrow 7-6 lead in the dying moments of the fourth quarter. Only 52 seconds remained. 52 seconds. The Buckeyes had one final drive. The Lantern recapped the scene. The Badger chant of victory was ringing across Ohio Field. The scarlet and gray of Ohio State saw championship hopes glimmering fainter and fainter as the seconds ticked away. But Illinois had taught the Buckeyes the lesson Wisconsin was to learn. Hodge Workman, the Wilsman's quarter, passed to Slyker. The ball was on the Buckeyes' 45-yard line then. The game was nearly over. One chance left. One chance alone remained. 
The crowd knew it. Wisconsin knew it. Pete Stinchcomb and Hodge Workman knew what the next play would be. No outcraftiness would beat the Badgers then. It was simply a question. Was Pete Stinchcomb able to break through the Madison 11? The lantern continued. Far out beyond left end, Stinchcomb took his place. It was a play first used by Ohio State against Michigan last year. It had been used in this game twice against the Badgers. Once it had worked for a touchdown. Once it had failed. The ball was snapped. Stinchcomb tore down the field. Workman rushed backward to throw. The stands were on their feet. The pigskin soared through the air. Championship hopes of both 11s hung upon its flight. Down, down, it came into the arms of Stinchcomb. It fell. A Wisconsin back grabbed Pete's ankle, but more than that was needed to stop the Buckeyes' left half. In less than that last minute of play, Ohio State had turned the trick and remained in the race for the Western Conference honors and had eliminated Wisconsin. Walter Camp praised the Buckeyes. Of quarterback Hodge Workman's performance, he declared, His forward passing was as good as any I have ever seen. I have seen his equal, but never his superior. Camp added that Pete Stinchcomb was one of the cleverest runners he had ever seen. Camp also gushed on now-graduated Chick Harley, who he called one of the best of his time. For Coach Wills, Camp saved high praise, too. Wills, Camp said, has brought out a wonderful football spirit at Ohio State and has developed some of the stars of the game. He has been one of the foremost developers of the open style of play in which the West has shown the way to the big Eastern teams. Ohio State was on its way again. Wisconsin had been left in the dust, and for ex-Buckeye coach and current Badger coach John Richards, this was a loss he couldn't get over. It was his best team at Wisconsin, and he couldn't beat the Buckeyes. In the weeks following the loss, Richards claimed that he and his team were treated unprofessionally in Columbus, and that he would resign as head coach if Ohio State was ever again on Wisconsin's schedule. Ohio State didn't take those comments from its former coach lying down. The Lantern wrote, In our opinion, the most unpleasant thing Coach Richards saw in Columbus was the walloping his team received at the hands of the Buckeyes, and that the alleged offenses of Ohio Staters did not trouble him nearly so much as the result of the game. This is not said, however, to belittle the members of the Badger team, as they had played as best they knew how, which might have been improved upon had Richards been the coach he believes himself to be. It is our personal hope that Ohio State will be able in a short time to continue football relations with Wisconsin, which means that we are implying that Richard's existence at Wisconsin will be short-lived. It is our belief, Mr. Richards, that with the penning of his most recent attack at Ohio State, you have signed your own death warrant as a Big Ten coach. The universities, Ohio State and Wisconsin, would not play again for another 10 years. Wisconsin was in the past now. It was on to Chicago. For the first time, Ohio State would play the Amos Alonzo Stag coach Chicago Maroons. While the Buckeyes looked good, so did Chicago. The Maroons stood undefeated at 3-0 and unscored upon. Trains, motorcycles, cars, Ohio State fans made their journey to Chicago. A force of 3,000 strong, part of 27,000 fans at Stag Field. Chicago took an early 6-0 lead, missing the point after. But Chicago's offense, known for its quick, short slant passes and passing attack that saw the ball meet man in perfect motion, fell flat. 
The Maroons mustered only three first downs all day. The Buckeyes moved the ball with less resistance, but Hodge Workman's passes always seemed to miss the target and drives sputtered out. So it was, just as the week earlier against Wisconsin, Ohio State found itself trailing in the fourth quarter. This time, far away from the friendly confines of Ohio Field, Coach Wills again paced the sidelines. The Buckeyes needed a break. As quick as a bullet, it happened. OSU lineman Andrew Nemec broke through the line as Chicago punted. He charged the punter and... Contact. The punt was blocked. Ohio State had the ball at the Chicago 20-yard line. From there, the gears of Wills' offensive machine took over. Stinchcomb's halfback partner in crime, Charles Taylor, punched it into the end zone, and Workman added a go-ahead extra point. The mighty Maroons of Chicago had finally allowed a point, and they would not score again. The Buckeyes won 7-6. OSU fans stormed the field. The second week in a row, their team had snatched victory in the fourth quarter. The second week in a row, the Buckeyes downed a foe with Big Ten championship aspirations. Now attention turned to the following week. An opponent smarting from their only loss ever to Ohio State a season ago, Michigan. Legendary Michigan coach Fielding Yost had a simple plan of attack. Stop Ohio State through the air. Yost reasoned if he could stop the Buckeyes' dangerous passing game, his bigger backs and line would push the Buckeyes around. Slow Wilson's men down through the air, he thought, and he would deliver victory for the Wolverines. It was homecoming. 19,000 fans filled Ohio Field with scarlet and gray. Scattered among them were 3,000 Michigan fans. As Wilson and his team took the field, he knew that the Buckeyes had never beaten Michigan in the state of Ohio. As they had in the past two games, the Buckeyes would play from behind. Michigan jumped out to a 7-0 lead in the first half. The Buckeyes responded as Stinchcomb, whose runs and returns dazzled the overflow crowd, jumped into the end zone from a yard out to tie the game at 7-7 before halftime. The time ticks and the game turned to the fourth quarter. The crowd watched as Michigan prepared to punt the ball from its own end zone. In the trenches again for the Buckeyes was Andrew Nemec, the man who a week ago had blocked a punt in Chicago to secure the Buckeye victory. Nemec lined up once more, game tied, intent to get to another punt. It isn't known what all-American Michigan punter Frank Stachetti thought at that moment. He was regarded as the best punter in football, earning kudos from the great Walter Camp. The ball was snapped. The wall of noise from nearly 20,000 fans of Ohio Field hit Stachetti's ears. He saw, in a blur, Andrew Nemec bearing down on him, joined by Truck Myers and Eilis Huffman. Stachetti's foot, reliable and trustworthy, hit the ball, but it would be no use. In the noise of Ohio Field, the shadow of all that had been in Ohio State's history, the shadow of all that was to come with the building and clamor of excitement of the new stadium, the ball was blocked. OSU recovered in the end zone for the go-ahead touchdown. Ohio State won. Joy cascaded through Ohio Field. For the first time in program history, Michigan walked off the field as losers in Columbus. Today, no rivalry is bigger than Michigan. But for Ohio State in 1920, the one they wanted the most, the one that would define the season, was against Illinois. 
to go undefeated and claim a Big Ten championship, the Buckeyes would seek revenge against the Illini. The Illini handed OSU its only loss the previous season. It had spoiled Chick Harley's final game and sent the OSU hero walking off Ohio Field in tears, inconsolable by his teammates. It didn't have to be said publicly. Hodge Workman knew it. Eilis Huffman knew it. Truck Myers knew it. Pete Stinchcomb absolutely knew it. This victory wasn't just for the 1920 team. This one, this one was for Chick. In the week leading up to the game, OSU announced that for the first time, a uniformed 100-piece band would accompany the team to Illinois. The band would be composed of members from the varsity band and cadet band. Moving forward, this would be the official school band. Edwin Essington would serve as the high step and drum major. The band would be dressed in a blue uniform with white belts, adorned with blue cape and scarlet and gray lining. In Champaign, the band seemed to be the only thing on the march. The game was a slugfest. Wils and Zupke's men fought. Scoring seemed impossible. It was 0-0 at the half and 0-0 at the end of the third. It seemed it would surely be a 0-0 draw. The mind of those watching turned back to a year before. There, with eight seconds left in Ohio field, Illinois kicked a field goal and ended Ohio State's dreams of an undefeated season. This Buckeye team all season had made last second and come from behind victories in art form. Wisconsin, Chicago, Michigan, could they do it again? Could they pull magic from a hat one final time? OSU needed a miracle. There were four seconds left. Ohio State had the ball at the Illinois 42-yard line. One more play or the game would end in a draw. Everyone in the stadium knew what was coming. Workman would throw a bomb to Pete Stinchcomb. It had worked against Wisconsin. Why not try it again? The ball was snapped. Workman dropped back, but Illinois knew what was coming too, and Stinchcomb was surrounded by defenders. As Walter Camp had observed earlier in the year, Workman was one of the best passers in the game, and this time, with the seconds dying away, he made a different plan. He turned and fired, and the ball soared through the air and landed in the hands of wide-open Truck Myers, who galloped into the end zone. The game was over. The Buckeyes had won another Big Ten championship. But more than that, they had avenged their only loss of last year. The Lantern headline read, Revenge for those last eight seconds of 1919 came Saturday. For the first time ever, OSU's season would end with a bowl game. The Buckeyes were headed to Pasadena. But OSU was hampered by injuries. Both Stinchcomb and Workmen were injured as the Buckeyes fell to California 28 to nothing in the program's first ever bowl appearance. The Rose Bowl was the cherry on top, and even if the cherry wasn't the way the Buckeyes wanted it, the season remained a smashing success. Coach Wills had proven that OSU was more than a single player in Chick Harley. With Harley gone, the Buckeyes still shined. With excitement around the program at an all-time high and the team's undefeated regular season run, OSU had raised more than a million dollars in private donations to fund Ohio Stadium. Construction would begin later that year in 1921. In his eight years at the helm for the Buckeyes, Coach John Wills had accomplished far beyond what anyone could have dreamed. 
Ohio State was not only good, they were one of the nation's powers. Hey there, thanks for listening to I Want to Go Back, a podcast about the people, places, and events that shaped Ohio State football. I'm your host, Jim Baird. This podcast is part of Land Grant Holy Land's network of Buckeye podcasts. If you did like what you listened to, please feel free to give us a five-star rating and share it with your friends. Music for this season was provided by Fields Ohio, Fool's Fire, and Nick Jados. Thanks to you for really helping bring the, the history of the game to life with your music. A podcast like this builds on great research already out there. If you want to read more, I'd encourage you to check out a couple of things, including the official Ohio State Football Encyclopedia by the legendary Jack Park, and check the extraordinary rise of Ohio State football in the tragic schoolboy athlete who made it happen by Bob Hunter. Both of those books were invaluable resources as I put this series together. Thanks, and go Bucks.